Don't you love it every night when your family sits down around the dinner table for those personal, heartfelt conversations? Well, probably not, because who does that anymore? Hey everyone, I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder, the death of the dinner table discussions. Big loss, right? Well, it turns out it really is. We just don't have much of a chance to speak openly with each other. We we don't know how to keep things going when we disagree. And the thing we surely don't know how to do is listen. We are terrible listeners, so bad that Dr. Deetra Hawkins will explain how she believes listening is the key to solving everything, from our political divide to even racism. I can't wait to hear this conversation. I'm sorry, Mark. I wasn't paying any attention. What would you say? No. No, no, our girls are gone, but every night we had a dinner table discussion. I, I, I just can't overvalue that. But uh, that's not all we're going to do. We've got a comeback story for the ages today, folks. It's about a woman by the name of Leah Coriel who escaped poverty and domestic violence by enlisting in the army only then to be diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. She lost the ability to walk, but she never lost the drive to compete. And she's going to tell us what it was that changed her from simply trying not to die to actually learning how to live. You'll also meet a guy by the name of Norm Bungard, an 82-year-old who will do anything to help a child in need, even if it means jumping out of an airplane. Ordinary people, extraordinary lives, it's time for Growing Bolder. Learning how to listen, it really does sound easy, but we all probably know people who just don't listen. Maybe it's us. The problem is we all think we're good at it, and it's the other person who has the problem. Dr. Dietra Hawkins is a psychologist whose area of expertise is healing racism and in creating environments of inclusion and acceptance. Discussion is her greatest tool, but she would often get frustrated when neither side would really hear what the other was saying. It was then that she realized that teaching people to actually listen would be the key to her success. I am a clinical psychologist by training, and um, often in our training, we're taught to listen to people for what they're not saying, not to pay attention to what they are saying and really believe them. I like to always share with people that when I started doing this work, I kind of came in with one perspective because that's what I was taught to do, but I really ended up going back to what I had always done that led me into the work to start with, which was to believe people. Um, And that if I just believe you and wherever you are, then you don't have to try and convince me. You can like maybe actually start to listen to yourself. And what we also see is that I like to share about some tips around compassionate listening. Um, So yeah, this is one, which is, you know, people are often taught to really listen so that they can reply, you know, that's how we, how we are taught, but we want to listen to understand. And so if we, we stop and do that and believe that person, it really makes a difference. The other thing though, is around compassion and that when we listen to people, with a sense of compassion, I have a whole list of things that, you know, are around those skills. But the last one is the most important, which is that we treat someone's story like that raw candidness as a gift. And we say, thank you. Like, thank you for sharing that. 
sometimes we don't think that listening is enough, but how many of us have people who really listen to us so that we can tell our full stories and that we're not, uh, again, interrogated, that we're really just believed and that we can respond with acceptance and that we lean in with some kind of curiosity. So it's a skill set that we all really need. And it's one that I hope we can help um, more people really grow and generate because it's really the only way that we heal. You know, I thought, boy, what a what an obvious thing to start with, but it is not. It's not just, you know, we need to try to be better listeners. It's I can confess to maybe I don't even know how. I, I don't mm. really know how to score myself on that because half the time I'm just pausing. I'm not listening. I'm pausing so I can get my next argument out yes. to what you just said, whether I hear you or not. So, you know, <laughs> two it's two things. How do we make ourselves more aware that we're the guilty one? You know, it's sure mm-hmm. I can complain all day long. Nobody's listening to me. But how do I keep myself from doing that to other people? And at the same time, how do I end up not just preparing? You know, as soon as you pause, I'm jumping in to tell you how wrong you are or more right. about what my side is. You know, I'm glad you asked that question around like the practicality of like, how do I do this listening or am I really good as a listener? And uh, I think that when we talk with people about this, one of the things I often talk to people about is the difference between a dialogue and debate. And, and we go through like all these different pieces related to that. But essentially, when we are actually listening one of the ways that we can help, like instead of asking a question about what someone said, we can ask them to share a story with us. We can ask them to say, so why is this so important to you? You know, can, can, I'm curious. And I'll, uh, using that's one of my favorites to, say, to use. I'm curious. Could you share a little bit more with me? Or, you know, I don't know that I caught all of that. Can you can you go back a little bit? Can I hear more of that? But learning how to ask questions. So I often uh, refer to an approach called appreciative inquiry and people can get into it more later. Like it's a much deeper like process to like know more about. So do we listen with this this inquiry base? Are we curious? Are we um, asking more about you know, so who was involved and, and when did that happen and how, you know, are we getting excited about it or are we only looking at the problems? Are we only looking at what's missing in that person's story? I feel like sometimes when I listen, I'm trying to think of ways to relate to what they're saying instead of just shutting my mouth and yes. focusing on what they're saying. I love that. So if we could just be quiet. So uh, one of our tips that we give people is to literally all of us have our phones with us all the time, you know, set a timer for yourself for two minutes and just be quiet for like two full minutes to listen to someone's story and then just say, thank you. Like you don't need to do anything more. And and it's amazing what will happen. I've, I've learned this even with my, you know, my family members that, if I could just stop and listen and then people will say, are you listening to me? I'm like, mm-hmm, I really am listening to you. Like I can give back like what they're saying, but it's really healing. So the other thing I tell people is like, you don't have to just be so quiet that you don't use um, the mm-hmmms and the wow and that, you know, like you're leaning in with them. You can still be part of like that conversation. It's more like a dance than a race. And so 
some of the things I do with people is to help them think about, you know, if we're in a dance together, what's the flow back and forth and how do we mirror each other? How do we think about, okay, I want to share the story. So before I share the story, just ask permission. Like, I have a story I'm thinking about. Can I, can I share that with you? And, and they might say yes, or hold on, let me finish my thought first. And then they can share the next, you know, like go on. But how many of us, like we forget what we were going to say because we got interrupted. Now, to prove that point, a couple of minutes ago, you said something that, man, really hit me in the head. And it was dialogue, not debate. Yes. I'm sitting here thinking pretty much anytime. Okay, you're speaking. And in my head, I'm going, yeah, but. That's what I'm starting my next sentence with. It's going to be, yeah, but. So I think what that does is I totally discount what you've just said. Yes. And then I step on you with my perspective and my mm-hmm. point of view. And that's kind of where we are these days in politics and in race relations. And, and, and boy, that's a terrible place to be stuck. Well, the what, where we're stuck at is what I call a false binary. So the binary is an either or. It's a yes, no. And so debate is what moves us into that binary kind of way of thinking. And we want to just be aware that most things in life, like most things that we really enjoy, are not a on and an off. <laughs> um, so a good meal like has all kinds of different flavors in it. You know, wonderful music has a, a full range of different you know, chords and different voices and different instruments. So the more that we lean into the things that really give us life and like help us like feel alive, it's not so much that simplicity of a yes, no, the black, white kind of thing. And so we can be much more curious and we can start to hold um, ourselves and then our society or like our media, for example, more accountable, where instead of them just sharing with us two, two sides of something, let's see three or four different sides. Um, and that the more different perspectives, if we ask questions without a judgment of this is a good or a bad, which is where a debate goes, we can actually move, you know, move things along in a much different kind of, you know, kind of way. One of the interesting things you've done, you know, we could just talk about what we're talking about this whole time and it would be mm-hmm. fascinating, but you've decided to take it and apply it and start seeing what kind of a difference it makes. And, you know, you call it the Chicago dinner model. And, yes. and tell us what you've done with that, how we can take part in that and uh, and how that's working. Thank you for raising that. Yeah, I, I have been helping groups, uh, communities use something called the Chicago dinner model for now more than 20 years. It was a way of bringing communities in Chicago, if you're familiar with that city, um, that are very, that were very different, you know, people who lived on the South side compared to the North side. And often all of us have a tendency to stay within kind of our little bubble. So this was an opportunity to actually have people who wouldn't cross over to go and have dinner, to be a stranger at someone's home uh, and talk about their experiences of race and racism. So in the last, uh, as all of us have been evolving with COVID, I've actually had the opportunity to support several organizations. One of them is called Equitable Dinners um, and they're located here in Atlanta. 
where we uh, use art to start the conversation. Then there's a designated facilitator. And then it's you who participate in a small breakout room to have a conversation around a particular topic. And the piece that's exciting about this and what I've been trying to help communities do for a while um, is to know that it's okay to just have the conversation and to get in a room with six other people for an hour, maybe an hour and a half, and share your story uh, to to talk about what it's like to um, be a person of color, to be white, to be learning, to come out of the bubble, uh, if you if you will. Most recently, there was a woman in the dinner that I was just in, and uh, she's like, "I'm tired. I was, you know, uh, in the in the '60s. I was marching. Um, I thought we had handled this already. I thought we knew what we were doing, and now I feel like everything is has been for naught." You know, she was just very, very depressed about the state of our country and, and the world that we're in. But she was showing up and she showed up for the dinner and she got to ask. We had a, another uh, young woman um, who has a daughter who's getting ready to start kindergarten. And she got to ask, have this generational, intergenerational conversation and say, like, what can I do and, and what can we be doing? Um, what do you see as the, the barriers as well as what are some of the opportunities? And they really just enjoyed sharing and talking with each other, hearing some things that would be practical um, places to show up. And, uh, and sometimes it's also just nice to hear, hear the story, even if they're hard um, about like, what it's like to not be acknowledged as a, a person of color, um, to have your child um, be treated in a way that is derogatory, and and just have people accept that story. So there's a lot that we could talk about there, but I would hope that people would consider showing up for one of these events. Um, what we've learned is that it's about the showing up that's so important and taking the risk because you don't have control over, you know, what's going to happen. So it really is amazing. We've had dinners every month, two or three of them, and they're, they last for two hours or so. We've had anywhere from 400 people showing up on one night to we, we've done all kinds of events. We did an event back in 2019 where we could all still get together where 1,200 people showed up in uh, small places in one city all on one night to have these conversations as well. So we just want people to know it's very possible. And when you have the conversations, it helps people feel encouraged and not alone. And we need to we need to know that we're not alone in trying to have these conversations. To do something like you're doing online, there must be an enormous cost to the people who want to take part. Oh, no, not at all. It's free. <laughs> I, love, I mean, it's a cost in terms of your giving up your time. So oh. I love that, but it's a it's a free event, and and people are are there to. It, people ask the question: Are we not preaching to the choir? And I like to let people know that the choir still needs to rehearse. So if you feel like you're a choir member, please show up. Do, do you know what I like to say to that, Doctor Dietra? And maybe sure. maybe I'm naive or maybe I'm wrong, but. I, 
I think that 99% of us are the choir. Yes. And the problem just lies in such a small group that if the choir is rehearsed and if the choir is singing at full potential, then we will drown out the rest. And yeah, I think that the, the, you know, part of this and part of what I was uh, wanting to share with you all today is the importance of looking at our purpose and our whys, like the asking that question, right? Like it's, it's important that we look not at the surface of things. So we tend to look at, you know, that one person or that bad apple, but we don't necessarily look at some of the deeper things. And if we ask some questions here, like what's really giving you hope? You know, what's really making a difference? What do you think could really, you know, be better here? There's a way to ask those questions without downplaying how serious the issues around equity, uh, the intergenerational conversations that we haven't been able to have, the, the way that our society right now tends to focus on like a race or a marathon instead of having a dance, um, that we, we really can and have always had a template for resistance. So we can tell deeper stories. Our brains are really very complex, right? And so this is one of the things I like to have people think about is how can you ask um, what is true here? What is possible here? What is good here? All of us have heard of a movie, uh, a term, the the statement we hear, this thing, the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, I want to really flip it around to the true, the possible, and the good. And the more we do that, then we can better balance the possibilities of doing more and and really move away from just being in that binary because that's where life is. That's where real growth and opportunity and hope is. Ageism. Mm-hmm. Uh, where where are we with that? Is is it just a bunch of people like me that are whining about it or is it a legitimate uh, addressable item? Well, I definitely think it's addressable because we're all just like some of the issues around gendering, um, we all have the ability to fall into that, again, that binary. And so if we limit our definition, our way of thinking about getting older. Um, I mean, I love what you're all about, you know, <laughs> like it, there, there's the growth, there's bold, there's there's uh, energy here. Life isn't over. There's actually more to in some ways that you can offer than when you have so many other, when you're just trying to like pay the bills and take care of the kids. I mean, there's really, I think, more opportunity if we are willing to, again, do more of a flip there and look at what the possibilities are. What do you really think uh, is the best we can do here? Is, Is racism, ageism, gender issues, are all these things just part of people Do we have this inside us and it's always going to be this way? Or can we, for lack of a better word, can we heal these things, these isms? Mm -hmm. Can we do Mm -hmm. it in in our lifetimes? Um, I do believe we can heal. I think our focus has to be on what healing looks like and what that experience is. And maybe one of those things is having people actually share the stories of healing. So, Um, Most of us are used to like 
going to the doctor and having the experience of a procedure, which would be the surgery, but not what happens after. The after is when you have other people who've been through the same procedure and they tell you your story. And so then you have hope that in three or four weeks, it's going to start to get better. So part of it is us shifting our mindsets around what it takes to heal. Is there anything that Bill Schaefer can do or Dr. Dietra can do to kind of start, you know, in our own grassroots way? Mm-hmm. First off, it's just asking that question. So what can I do? Thank you, Bill, for saying that. Uh, I think the other thing that we can do more often is that we can go and we can find places to show up and have conversations and share our own stories. Um, we can ask our honest questions about how difficult it is and, and kind of lean in to understand that cynicism, for example, is part of maintaining the status quo. You know, if I make it so that you don't feel like you can do anything, then nothing changes. And so just be aware for yourself that when you are falling into that place of cynicism, you're actually contributing to things staying the same. And if we want to have things be better, we have to choose to make that, you know, make things be better. Sometimes we're, we're limited by other groups and other times we kind of buy into we kind of buy into the uh, the conventional thinking about ourselves and especially with ageism a lot of it is brought on by ourselves how much of uh, especially ageism is a self-fulfilling prophecy how do we break out of of uh, the limitations that we buy into that society sets on us uh, we have to uh, get curious and tell some different stories. So other indigenous wisdom doesn't, there are different stories there. You know, there's a different trajectory on how we even treat our elders. And the more we can actually lean into and learn some of those stories, the better off we're going to be. What are the stories that we have told ourselves? And the more that we can expand those stories to be not so limiting and, and really reimagine then we can get to a different place. You know, this is great to hear you say because it's sort of what we've learned at Growing Boulder, and that's what we do. We we call it the uh, the people like me effect. Yeah, is that we learn more from seeing other people like us doing things, thinking mm-hmm. differently, experiencing things. Uh, that telling these stories, which is what our television show is all about and our website, growingbolder.com, is all about, it's just providing that different glimpse of who you are rather than the greeting card that says, hey, you're 60, where did I put my keys? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not buying in to uh, society's limitations mm-hmm. at the same time, you know, our own, and at the same time not accepting the limitations that you hear about others as well. And it all comes back to making that flip again of whether or not we want to look at the ditch of what's not there or if we want to look at the opportunities of what we do have. What would you say that that you've learned about what's really important in life or something about life that you can share with us? Um, you know, I could probably say a bunch of things, but what I will uh, lean into is that it's all about showing up. Um, and, and I also think it's a choice to have fun. So people are often asking me um, around like how to have these hard conversations or how to show up to talk about issues of 
gendering or racism or those sorts of things, we have to lean in with some fun. Um, and, and so I just really try to take that on and I encourage my team to do that and to know that you're not alone. So the, the main thing, the other thing I like to just highlight for people is that when you start to think you're alone, you know, share that story because often when you start to share that story, you'll realize you're not alone. And just by, they might not have your exact experience, but having someone hear it helps you not feel so alone. So I hope that those are some, you know, maybe a few things that that are helpful to, you know, kind of end on. I think everything you said is helpful. And this will be one of those interviews. I think that people will be looking back again to say, wait, what did she say about listening? What did she say (laughs) about dialogue versus debate again? I even said this wrong at the beginning where, oh, this is going to be one of those heavy conversations. It doesn't have to be like heavy, like, you know, we're all grim. This could be exciting. It could, like you said, it's fun. It's 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 uplifting. It's empowering and it's interesting to learn about other people, to to, you know, to walk in somebody else's shoes, to see yourself in a different mirror. She is Dr. Deetra Hawkins. It was really fun. And you can take part in an online dinner where people tell their stories and, and talk about their experiences and, and write down this, this website here. It's called equitabledinners.com, equitabledinners.com. And as she was talking, as, as interesting as her perspective on, on listening is and the things that we can learn from others, she was fascinating too. And boy, wouldn't you like to learn more about her? It's drdetra.com. It's D-R-D-I-E-T-R-A. Coming up, she overcame trauma, violence, divorce, depression, and a debilitating disease. But hers is a comeback story for the ages. You'll meet the unforgettable Leah Coriel next on Growing Boulder. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. Bill, that's Mark, and this is Growing Boulder. want to let you know about a truly inspiring podcast, one that focuses on people who turn to athletics as their passion in life and for their health and for their happiness. And man, do these people have the most incredible heartfelt stories to tell. The podcast is called Fountain of Youth. 
It's hosted by Mark, and we're going to hear from someone right now who was one of your guests. Yeah, Bill, you know, as we've learned many times, it's uh, not unusual to find people whose lives have been enhanced, uh, their health has been improved, and their overall well-being taken to a whole new level just by participating in organized sports. But this one really stood out to us. Leah Coriel is an Army veteran who's had such a difficult life, and I mean tough, a traumatic childhood diagnosed with an incurable disease. She went through a divorce, was on the verge of taking her own life, and of all things, what saved her was the sport of archery. How did that happen? Well, here's the story from our Fountain of Youth podcast conversation with Leah Coriel. At the time, I was at graduate school in, at UW-Milwaukee, and my, my graduate position was for me to help the post-9-11 GI Bill kids, mostly boys, figure out how to transition from the battlefield to the classroom. And it was ironic because my army career was very, very short because I got so sick. So I never really identified as a veteran, not really because I felt like I let myself down and I let, you know, America down because I signed up to do a job and ended up not being able to do it. But those kids were the light of my life. That's where there was an epic change. Before that, you know, there was a period of years where, you know, I got my degree in recreation after I got out of the army, had a you know, husband, I had kids, but my identity was as when people say, tell me about yourself. Well, my name is Leah or Lisa and I have MS and it was a huge part of my identity because I felt like I had to explain why I look the way I look. But when I started working with these young men and women is, you know, with significant physical challenges, amputations, burns, and that wasn't their identity. They're like, hey, lady, how are you? And it was their invite to go to this adaptive sports program through the VA and the DOD in California. And I hadn't been invited to anything that was therapeutic recreation in the 30 some years I'd had MS because that's not typically a a demographic or a box that adaptive sports looks at. So we went to this adaptive sports camp in, in California and the first day there was a huge shift in my life because, you know, I was overweight, you know, I was shy. I didn't care about really my appearance. And they said, all right, athletes. And I'm like, I'm not an athlete. You know, people assume that I've been a lifelong athlete. (laughs) With my childhood, I've never played sports. I was the last kid on the playground chosen to play on a kickball team because they would rather play one person short than have Leah on their team. So no, I wasn't an athlete, but through the whole thing, they kept calling us athletes. So the first time in my life, I wasn't, you know, a student or a patient or a participant or, you know, something other than an athlete. And that shift changed my life, absolutely changed my life because it changed my identity and who I thought I could be. So I wasn't, you know, Lisa the loser or Lisa with MS or Leah, the woman who's divorced. I was Leah, an adaptive athlete, and it was life changing. I love every little bit of that because it comes right back to what I said as I introduce you, Leah, what the mind believes the body embraces. In in your 50s, you discover your path forward when you found a way to no longer define yourself as someone with a disease, but now you're an athlete. You embodied that thought, and and you didn't just learn to shoot uh, a bow and arrow. You you began to compete. How did you come into the Paralympics? Well, in the sports camp, I mean, we did things like wheelchair basketball 
you know, I'm built like a no. <laughs> I don't, I don't, even when I could walk, I would never, basketball would not be on the plate. You know, obviously I'm not built like a track star. I didn't have enough strength to do the field, you know, discus or shot or whatever. But when we got to archery and I'm like, so what actually are we going to do? Because, you know, my brothers had like little toy bows and stuff, but I had never shot a bow. And they said, well, you know, the, the object is to repeat, be able to repeat your shot process, you know, and I'm like, do I stay in my wheelchair? And they're like, yeah, because at that time I could still kind of stand, maybe take a few steps. I'm like, I can sit still and do the same thing over and over again. I'm your girl. I can do that. Absolutely. So I actually was tagged then to do some Paralympic emerging athlete. You know, I got to remember, I've never shot a bow before. So I started going to these clinics and the, the Paralympic coach at the time, Randy Smith, um, was kind of leading us through the steps to be able to become classified. So they have to look at your medical issues and they classify you. They'll do a physical evaluation. They'll do a medical records evaluation and decide where you belong in that class. So when it came time for that, you know, I've been shooting maybe... 13, nine months at that time. And, and I said, well, what class do you think I will be in? And she said, you'll be a W1. So one of the guys on the team, another vet said, I'm like, well, what's a W1? He said, that means you're the most impaired. You're the most messed up. So I went into the evaluation and it, and it's a functional evaluation. So it's all about the things you can't do. And I came out of there and was like, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. I have just decided that I'm not a, you know, a person who is losing. I am a person that wants to gain. And that's what I got from being an adaptive athlete. And they just told me everything that was wrong. I'm not doing it. I'm not going to do something that's going to bring me back down. But Randy Smith said, Leah, we have never had a female W1 ever classify or compete in the United States. You would be that first person. You have the opportunity to have a platform to change lives. You are the person, if anybody that I've ever met, that can do this. And I, you know, thought about it. I'm like, she's right. So I was actually recruited for the U.S. archery team, and not because of my abilities or my skills or my proudness with a bow. I was recruited because I was so impaired. But once I got over that and decided, again, once again, rebel with intent. All right, so I'm the most impaired. What are you going to do with it? And from then on, it was game on. So I decided in 2015 to start to train full time. So I put my graduate school on a back page. My daughter was, you know, on her own and my son was leaving for his his career in the military. So through 2015, I made the USA team and I made the world championship team. And by 2016, I had made the Rio Paralympic team as the United States first W1 female archer. I am the only to this day, the only female W1 archer in the Western hemisphere. So there's nobody in Canada, South America, Latin America. Actually, there might be one lady, I think, that is coming on board from Mexico because it is extremely, extremely difficult to practice at the level that you need to compete as somebody with significant impairments. But for me, that just pushes me to go further. So when I first started and went to Rio in 2016, and now I went to Japan and they compared the recent ones and it was heartbreaking. I had to have another evaluation. It was heartbreaking how much function I've lost. Mm. But I've never had higher scores. I broke a world record in Tokyo. So you can't tell me that's not a mindset thing. Because as my body becomes more impaired, I am driven by that knowledge is power. 
So are other archers stronger than me or, you know, have more endurance? Yes, they do. But I'm more patient and I'm smarter. I'm going to wait for my shot and I'm not going to waste any time on bad shots. And if that isn't a metaphor for life, I don't know what is. She is amazing, Bill. And I want to invite all of you folks out there to subscribe to our podcast, Fountain of Youth. You can subscribe anywhere you get your podcast. I promise you it will help change your life by inspiring you to know that more is possible. could somebody possibly do to make a difference if they're in their 80s? Well, Norm Bungard is about to jump out of a plane because he believes the sky is the limit. That's next on Growing Boulder. Laughing stars falling out of sight Bright beauties are twirling now Bright beauties are twirling to cast a net Shopping corks popping late at night Laughing stars falling out of sight Bright beauties are twirling now Bright beauties are twirling to cast a net Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. Imagine for a minute, folks, that you're going to meet this incredible person, someone who's a super volunteer who works with the elderly through the Florida Council on Aging, someone who visits with foster kids as a guardian ad litem, someone who helps students at the University of South Florida. I mean, the list goes on and on. What would you think this person looks like? And then if I tell you he's about to jump out of an airplane to raise funds for the Florida Council of Aging, what do you think? Young, strong? Well, that's what I thought, but boy, was I surprised. Here's Bill. Norm Bungard doesn't think of himself as a risk taker, so what is he about to do? Well, let's rewind a little bit and see how he got here. Hi, Norman. Hey. How you doing, man? Life is good. Life is good. I'm happy. Bungard is one of the happiest guys you'll ever meet. His energy, his excitement. I am strong and confident. It's infectious. It's not at all what some would expect from an 84-year-old. And I sometimes get up frustrated because I think some people look at me and think of me as, well, the poor old guy, he doesn't, uh, and that's, I, I kind of look at them and think, I'm sorry for him, but for them, if they, if they don't realize that by aging, you can learn um, and stay engaged. Uh, but, but again, it's all up to the individual. It's why Norm is on a mission, getting ready to jump out of a plane partly to inspire us all to do more and partly to prove that age doesn't have to hold you back from anything. It's kind of a thin line between helping an aging person or 
treating them that, oh, you poor soul, you don't have much to offer. Norm, you see, has plenty to offer. He believes we all do. He points out that he's not the most nimble or the most athletic. And I'm not particularly bright either. But um, he can't even hear very well. You can keep him in for now. I'll keep it in for now. But it's what he does that makes him stand out. You see, he figured out that retiring wasn't the end of his usefulness. It was just the beginning. Before I retired, I was still working for the Social Security Administration. And as you know, a lot of that is about retirement. And I spoke to thousands, literally thousands of people who were about to retire and change their life. Some of them were going to play golf. Some were going to travel. Some were going to take care of their grandkids. And some were going to sit in a rocking chair. All of that is fine if that's what they wanted. But I prayed about it. I said, God, what? How, how can I do I'm not sure exactly what I want to do. What he realized is he wanted to help by volunteering for the Florida Council on Aging, Guardian Ad Litem, the University of South Florida, and others. He's made a significant contribution to those in need while living a fulfilling life, one that he loves. Do you get that at 84, you're in an age group that is normally receiving benefits, not giving them to others. I understand that, and I'm getting a lot of benefit out of this, but it's not financial. It is the satisfaction of knowing that I'm still able to serve. And occasionally, he's still able to go after a pretty big thrill. What are you getting ready to do? I'm going to do a tandem jump. A tandem jump? Out of an airplane. Out of an air? You're going skydiving? I think about 13,500 feet. No way, that's like two and a half miles. You know, I'm you're still gonna be... thinking about it, but I know, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. Today, I didn't have to be pushed. I was ready. I just waited for him to tap. He didn't have to tap very hard. Once I got out of the plane, there was zero fear. I love the free fall, and this time I didn't hold on to this. To, uh, he told me they wanted to, you know, to enjoy it, to really swing. I swung my arms like I was crazy. At 84, you still love life. I do. Oh, yeah, it's wonderful. And do you get that there's a lot of people that think as you age, your value diminishes? It's, it's a lot of it is about attitude, and I'm very optimistic. Yes, sometimes I get down I, like other people, but I keep trying uh, because I am fascinated by everything that life has to offer. Do you worry about having more days behind you than ahead of you? Not at all. I've always been very frank and forward about my age. I say, you know, I'm happy to be 84. Because, what the, first of all, what's the use? I'm happy. I got today, and you. we never know when the end is going to come. Good job, Norm! I don't want to sit in the rocking chair. I want senior citizens and the disabled to know that they can do much more, they can do more than they think. Now, I'm not suggesting they need to dare jump out of a plane, 
but they can do more than they think. And uh, so stay in the game, stay engaged, and never give up. How much more inspiring can one human being be? I love what Norm said there at the end. It's the best advice, especially coming from someone who's out there doing it. Stay in the game, stay engaged, and never, ever give up. Hey, if Norm can do it, I think we all can. When we come back, it's On My Mind with Mark. This is Growing Bold. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingbolder.com slash podcasts. Well, this is the part of the program that everybody looks forward to each week because it gives us a moment to look at something from a different perspective, a clearer perspective. We call it On My Mind with Mark. So I ask you, my friend, what is on your mind today? You know, you mentioned it earlier, Bill, our our new podcast, Fountain of Youth. And in a very real way, it's a great companion piece to this show because Growing Boulder and Fountain of Youth combined are are really a playbook for life. Uh, Fountain of Youth is a longer format than this is, but the stories are similar. The message is really, really strong. And and here's, you know, you you know I love me a good research project, Bill. Uh, There was one that caught my eye recently that was published in 2018 in the New England Journal of Medicine, and the study found that the most productive age in human life is between the ages of 60 and 70 years old. The second most productive stage in human life is now now 70 to 80 years old. And of course, folks, that doesn't mean that we're at our peak physically during those times, but it does mean that in terms of getting things done, in terms of having an impact, the stories that we hear all the time on this radio show, that's when we're at our best. And Bill, it might be a function of one of these things where less is more. You know, we have fewer things to worry about. We're not constrained by having to raise a family or go to a job that we hate. And in a way, we know what's important and we can be more productive. Isn't that interesting? Because it goes counter to what we think. We think like when somebody turns 65 or whenever you retire, you're done. Your usefulness is over. You're marginalized. You're off on the sideline now while the rest of us are still in the game. That's really incredible. Yes. 60 to 70, most productive, then 70 to 80. And I have to say, Bill, based upon what you and I see on a daily basis, it's not going to be long before 80 to 90 is one of the most productive stages because we meet people all the time that are getting it done. And let me me just kind of leave it with this. You have to work for it, folks. You know, aging successfully, aging healthily is a DIY project. Do it yourself. You can't buy passion. You can't buy purpose. It doesn't come in a pill. It doesn't come in a bottle. It is out there for you, but you got to work for it. I think this is the, you know, the big separation between those that age successfully and those that don't. It's a verb. You got to make it happen. You got to get out there and lean in. 
And as Mark said, do check out that Fountain of Youth podcast because it gives us a chance. Mark especially can can drill down with some of these people where, you know, in other cases, it takes us a while just to tell what their story is, uh, why what they're doing is remarkable. But in the podcast, we can go a little bit deeper and we can learn uh, what their lives are like, what their background, what, what they're doing on a day-to-day basis, which is similar to what we're going through. But when we hear how other people have found ways to stay engaged and, and to push themselves to more adventures, to to more satisfaction in life and, and, and greater accomplishments, man, it's empowering. When you're surrounded by people who are really doing it, you want to do it too. That's what Growing Boulder is. That's what the Fountain of Youth podcast is. Thank you for being part of this program. Remember, come back each and every time. We will see you again very, very soon. The Growing Boulder radio show is a production of Growing Boulder, LLC. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member, you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, going high and mighty trap. Countless fire and flaming road, using ideas as my map. We'll meet on edges soon, said I. Oh